In 2013, a group of people who were interested in queer history met at the home of the late Stuart Butler. Stuart, who was 83 at the time, showed them dozens of boxes of papers he had collected and saved throughout his 35-year career as an LGBT plus activist. Stuart then asked the group what was going to happen to his archives when something happened to him. The result was the creation of the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana. The Archives Project chronicles the cultural and historical materials of the LGBT Plus community in Louisiana. The mission of the project is to preserve, protect, promote, and encourage the preservation of these materials and make them available for future generations to access for research and study. Quiet Conversations is proud to have the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana as a part of this podcast. If you'd like to contribute, please visit them at lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. That's lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. Acknowledging and celebrating our differences is essential in hearing another person's views as it can help you approach conversations with a willingness to learn. Keep in mind that your peers may also have different reasons motivating their viewpoints and actions. My name is Arthur Severio and welcome to Quiet Conversations. The Upstairs Lounge arson attack, sometimes called the Upstairs Lounge Fire, occurred on June 24, 1973, at a gay bar called the Upstairs Lounge, located on the second floor of a three-story building at 604 Iberville Street in New Orleans, Louisiana. 32 people died and 15 were injured as a result of fire or smoke inhalation. The official cause is still listed as undetermined origin. The primary suspect, a gay man, with a history of psychiatric impairment named Roger Dell Nunez, who had been ejected from the bar earlier in the day, was never charged and killed himself in November 1974. Until the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting in which 49 people were murdered, the upstairs lounge arson attack was the deadliest attack on a gay club in U.S. history. From the upstairs lounge arson, 32 deaths in a New Orleans gay bar, June 24, 1973, by Clayton Dallery Edwards. Long after the fire was over, survivors and curious onlookers lingered, looking up through the windows and trying to see what the police and the fire investigators were doing. A neighboring bartender set up a station on the street to sell drinks to the crowd. Hey, do you ha- do you have any stories about the upstairs? Well, I told you we were in Wanda's, you know, the old nasty Wanda's, my baby sister and I, and I had just those are the days when we used to glue on the fingernails. Well, I had this good super glue by Duro, and honey, they didn't come off, especially when they were new. So anyway, we go in there at Wanda's, you know, the downstairs, the the one where all the old aunties went to pick up the hustlers. You know that one. I've heard a lot about it in this podcast, but it was closed by the time I got there. We were in there. Mimi's sister went in the bathroom or tried to go in the bathroom and she knocked on the door. Well, there was a girl in there, a genetic born girl. 
and all those piece of trash boys, she's opened the door and she shoved it into Tanya saying, I was hit in this and that. Well, you know, baby sister had already had a few drinks. She grabbed hold of her and almost scratched her eyes out of her head and pulled her hair and slung her. They said, that's a real girl. I said, well, who gives a fuck? I said, your mama was a real girl too. And I don't give a fuck about her either. So she beat the piss out of her. Well, we, the reason we weren't up there was because we got delayed for her whipping that girl's ass. We were going down there just for the hell of it. And I'd only been there one other time. We didn't make it. Because when we went out the door, the fire was licking out the side of the, those bars on the window. Why they had bars up there is beyond me on the second floor. I, I don't, I don't understand that. Well, supposedly they thought that it would keep people from falling out the window. Anyway, it kept them from living. Sure but anyway, did. when I was taking care of this little old lady in Davie, Florida, I, there was a lesbian who would take the second shift, and she had a cousin who died in that fire. Here's Regina Adams. On the weekends when we went there, there was a lot more people there, and I met four or five people on the weekends, and that's why I became a regular at the bar. And I was going there for about a month when I met my daughter, Reggie. Can we talk about the day that the fire happened? Okay. The day the fire happened was a good day for us until the fire. We had a good time. We were going, uh, we got up and we piddled around in the house and we were going to the beer bus at 5 o'clock. We got there right about 10 minutes to 5 before the beer bus started. Neither one of us was drinking beer, but we, we knew our friends were there, and there was always a crowd there before the beer bus started. Some of them would leave, and uh, a bunch more would come in at 5 o'clock when the beer bus started. us. It was from 5 to 7, usually by 8, we'd, we'd be leaving the bar, and we'd go get a bite to eat and go home. Sorry. That particular day was her buddy Rasmussen's lover, Adam's birthday. So when we got there, and when we found out it was Adam's birthday, we talked about it. And so, well, why don't we take him to dinner with us? We had plans to go to dinner already. And so Buddy said, well, he, so he said, when he got off at 8, we could go to dinner. I said, well, that's what time we need to leave anyway. A few minutes, and I said, Reggie, how much cash do you have on you? He says, uh, he said, I don't know if I have enough for four of us for dinner. Well, I said, well, uh, we should get the checkbook, and Buddy will cash the check for us. I walked around, I left, and when I got back, I got within a block and they wouldn't let me get any further to it. They had blocked off the street there between Royal and Charters because of the fire. And I saw a couple of people I knew that were standing up against the building with blankets on them, but they wouldn't let me go up. I said, well, I gotta find out if my lover got out. I said, I'm sorry, but you can't go past this barricade. How but close were you, I, Regina? I was a half a block away. It was told to me, they said they heard a, a horn honk and they thought it was the cab. So the people that called the cab opened that fire door and when it did, it was like a flash fire. It shot across the room and set the ceiling tiles on fire and the air conditioner from all the heat blew up and it fell down into the window and it pinned somebody in the window. Buddy Rasmussen jumped over the bar and had, had his keys and he opened it the back door to the theater and they went across the stain down the fire estate onto Fire Street. Sir, did you stand there by yourself or did somebody come and get you or No, I, I got I was standing there by myself at that time 
within about 15 minutes, there was a whole crowd of people there. So they wouldn't let anybody go past the corner there. They, you know, they said it was dangerous to go down there and you're getting away to the fire department. A lot of people just passed out from the heat. And he said they had to step over some of the people to get to the side door. There's the people that were in by the piano and in the archway there were the first ones to get hit with the flash. And that, uh, the police said it, it was so hot it would seal their esophagus. They couldn't breathe it in the Well, everybody that was sitting around the piano, including Brother Rasmussen's lover who died on his birthday, died from heat asphyxiation. They said they didn't feel any pain. It just the heat was so intense. They just fainted, and since their esophagus was sealed, they couldn't breathe. So they just blacked out. So they didn't actually feel the fire. That was the only saving grace for me because I know he did suffer. I'm sure that was terror, but no pain. From the documentary Upstairs Inferno, MCC Bishop Paul Breton. My philosophy is that there are healing powers in human touch. I knew these people needed some sort of help that ranged anywhere from having a shoulder to cry on or maybe just a hug to help them through their pain. The ability to cry is very much needed in human beings in times like this, he said. Empathy from other people and knowing somebody cares. Empathy from other people and knowing somebody cares makes all the difference in the world. I started meeting people, touching people, holding people, going to the funeral homes, and going to the hospitals. Hospital visitations were the hardest, he said. There was flesh hanging from bones and open wounds, and he was not able to use the anointing oil or offer communion because of infection setting in. One of the things that's very much needed by human beings is the ability to cry, for someone to feel real empathy from another person. Sometimes, just knowing someone cares makes all the difference in the world. Luther Bach's spirits was very high. He believed he was going to get out of the hospital and go back to work as a school teacher. He was not going to let a little thing like being burnt keep him down. He continually asked about others and never complained about the pain he felt from his own injuries. From an NPR interview, Troy Perry recalls, I remember going to the hospitals. One of them, a school teacher, burned so badly he said, Well, the school board just called to tell me I was fired. He got in the call while he was laying in the burn unit. He said, can you help me find a job? I said, absolutely. He was burned so bad I couldn't imagine him living. He died the next day. After Jean Gosnell's name appeared in the newspaper, she was fired from a job at the real estate company where she worked as a receptionist. Her heterosexual friends stopped speaking to her, even though they knew she was not gay. Troy Perry, meanwhile, there are families who were literally picking up the phone, learning that their children were in the morgue. I mean, this is the story to tell, the story of homophobia, that children still don't tell their parents that they're queer. Shortly after my first edition came out, which was, what, 2011, somewhere in there, I got a call from a woman in Alabama who said her father was Dwayne Mitchell, and he was one of Mitch Mitchell's boys, who the two boys who were left at the movie theater that night, and no one came to pick him up. Well, she gave me his her father's number. I called him, and we talked. He left New Orleans not even knowing what had happened. Whenever he would ask his mother about his father, she would just say, 
Your father was a drunk and he died in a bar. When he read the chapter I wrote on his father, it was just, you know, it, it gave him his father back. And on June 24th, 1973, Mitch Mitchell and Horace Broussard dropped off Mitch's two young sons at the Britannia Movie House in uptown New Orleans on their way to services at the new home of the MCC Church on Magazine Street. Mitch was a newly ordained minister to the church. Mitch and Horace, a new young couple, would bring the boys up for a week's visit from Alabama. Mitch promised the boys he would be back as soon as services were over. Their father never showed up. You see, Mitch had escaped the flames, but after realizing that Horace was still in the bar, he rushed back in to save him. We visited like one month during the summertime, and we'd go down there and we'd stay with him a whole month. He took us to the movies and come back and get us. He just kept on running in the movie, and uh, we didn't find out for a week that he was dead. Well, say my granddaddy, he sent money for plane tickets to fly me and my brother home. Uh, we waited around for like a week, and they finally called and said that it was got him by his dental record. He was burned badly. They couldn't open the casket or nothing. It was you and your brother? Yeah, me and my brother. I live with my mom, her cast of colors. She was married to one guy named Johnny Tanner. He was alright, I guess. Until he tried to kill her. He shot her twice. And one went through her right eye and lodged in her forehead. I had to operate and take that out. And then one went through her shoulder. She still carried a torch for him after he'd done that. But then you know, that happened about two weeks after my dad died. My granddad called us back in the back. They had a little country store called Metro Grocery in Blanks, Alabama. My granddad had a heart condition. He had a little cot set up back in the back where he, when he felt bad, he could go back there and lay down. We was visiting them like we usually did on the weekend. He told, called us back there and told that my mom was shot. I looked at him and said, is she dead? And he said, no, she's not dead. She's in uh, Erlanger Hospital in Chattanooga. We stayed with them until my mama got better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My daddy. What now? He's dead now. He passed about three years ago. My mother knew what had happened to him, I think, but never did tell me. He was bad into drugs, pistol, meth. He would do stupid stuff and then make me mad. We got along. I'd call him every once in a while and see how he was doing. And he lived with my mom and she moved out. It drove him crazy, and not long after that, they found him dead at half my mom was living in. Is your mom still alive? No, she passed away about a couple years ago. I can only imagine what these people were feeling at this time. The shock, the trauma, the terror. Regina and the Mitchell kids not knowing what was happening. Where were their father? Where was Reggie? Here's Regina. And nobody knows who it was. But Reggie was identified 
by his dental records. He had my high school ring melted onto his hand, and he was burned beyond recognition. But they said, uh, did he have a ring on? I said, yeah, he wore my high school ring. I gave it to him when we started going steady the first week, and he never took it off. Uh, dental records on a black male, and we didn't know who it was, but he had a ring melted on his finger. So they notify his family, and since I wasn't a relative or anything, they wouldn't even let me go claim ashes or anything. His family came and stayed with me in, in 1017 Conta. They stayed in, and when they got ready to leave, I said to them, "If y'all need any of this furniture, take it, because I'm not going to be able to stay here. There's too many memories." And I said, "I get up every morning. I still feel like he's here, like he's uh, coming through the door from work or his." You know, I said, still having flashbacks, and I said, it's driving me crazy. I said, and plus, I don't want to pay this high rent by myself. Because even then, renting a quarter was not cheap. I said, I'm going to move out of here. And I had already had a couple of friends that told me, look, if you need a place to stay, you come stay with me. i got a spare room. We had a big sofa in the living room and a brand-new washer and dryer and refrigerator that didn't belong to the apartment. We, we got all that from Kirschman's from from his work and a dining room table and I told his mama if you want to take that go ahead and take that I said Reggie and I have been paying on it and it's just about paid off I said I'll make the final payments in a couple more months and then uh, you know don't worry about it if y'all want to take it just take it so she took the uh, dining room table and chairs the washer dryer and the refrigerator and the sofa in the living room I had a sofa bed in the spare room which was like uh, like a study or a small room with a sofa bed in there and a desk and a chair and a big plant in front of the window and that's where they slept. They opened up the sofa bed and slept there when they were there. And we had a door that shut between the bedroom and that room. And so I shut that door and gave, gave them privacy. Yeah, they left. They packed up the little U-Haul truck thing they rented. They took uh, his clothes and some other things. They took that stuff and they went off, and I never heard from them again. Typical family when death well, happens. When she came down, the last thing she did was kiss me on the cheek. She says, "My son would have loved you." And I said, "I know, and I really loved him too." And uh, that's the last thing I ever heard from him. I never knew where he was buried until like two years ago. Uh, Robert Camina, he met a friend of Reggie's, and Reggie's friend. He would chip in to pay for a headstone because they had buried him, but there was no headstone. Just this last year, we got a plaque recognizing who he was. and Here's Frank Perez of the LGBT Plus Archives of Louisiana. One of the 32 victims of the upstairs lounge was a man by the name of Ferris LeBlanc. You would think he was from South Louisiana with a name last name like that, but he wasn't. He was actually from California. And he had found his way to New Orleans, and he died in the fire. The the unique thing about Ferris is that he was one of four bodies that were not claimed. Well, there were actually more that were not claimed. Uh, he was identified, but no one claimed him. And so he was buried in a pauper's grave with three other unidentified white males who died in the fire. It wasn't until 42 years later 
that his family discovered what had happened to him. So his sister, Marilyn, who is still alive, and his, her son and his wife immediately came to New Orleans and tried to reclaim the body and bring him back to California. They wanted to give him proper burial with military honors. You know, Ferris was a World War II veteran. He had fought not only the Battle of the Bulge, but before that, it stormed the beaches of Normandy. I mean, he was a war hero. They knew Ferris was gay, and they didn't have a problem with that. She told me that the reason they did not claim Ferris is that they did not know he had died in 1973 in New Orleans. They didn't discover that until 42 years later. Now, the story gets really sad because the city of New Orleans has lost the records of where he's buried. We've identified the cemetery. It was a private cemetery uh, in, in New Orleans East called Rest Haven. And in the early 70s, the city of New Orleans was renting a parcel of land there to bury indigent people. And we've even managed to get the row number and the lot number where the tomb was, but there are no maps of where that would be. When you talk to the city, they say talk to the company that owns the cemetery. But when you talk to the private corporation that owns the cemetery, they say talk to the city. So they've been having a long, what's must be eight years struggle now trying to locate Ferris and the city really didn't give a damn until last year when uh, J.P. Morrell who is a fairly new city council member heard about the case and really was moved by it and he authored a resolution last year for the 49th anniversary acknowledging the victims and the fire and apologizing for the way the city behaved 50 years, 49 years ago at that time. Ferris's family has been in contact with Council Member Morrell, and they are working to locate him. And they have made some progress in the last year, but they haven't found him yet, but they are working on it. Joseph Henry Adams, Reginald E. Adams, Guy D. Anderson, Joe William Bailey, Luther Boggs, Louis Horace Broussard, Herbert Dean Cooley, Donald Walter Dunbar, Adam Roland Fontenot, Larry Norman Frost, David Stewart Gary, Horace Skip Getchell, John Thomas Golding Sr., Gerald Hoyt Gordon, Glenn Richard Dick Green, James Wall Hambrick, Kenneth Paul Harrington, Reverend William R. Larson, Ferris LeBlanc, Robert Bob Lumpkin, Leon Richard Maples, George Stephen Bud Motney, Clarence Joseph McCloskey Jr., Dwayne George Mitch Mitchell, Larry Stratton, Eddie Jose Warren, James Curtis Warren, Willie Inez Warren, Dr. Perry Lane Waters Jr., Douglas Maxwell Williams, unidentified white male, unidentified white male.
Quiet Conversations is written and researched by me and produced with the best of the information that I have found at the time of this broadcast. The speaker's views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of myself, this podcast, or anyone else. The material information presented here is for entertainment purposes only. The Quiet Conversations podcast name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of me, Arthur Severio, and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, and follow on Apple Podcasts. My name is Arthur Severio, and I thank you for joining us. If they ask you what day it is, tell them it's your day. If they ask you how it's going, tell them it's going your way. If they ask you what time it is, tell them it's your time. And no matter how dark it gets, go on and shine. Go on and shine. No matter how dark it gets, go on and shine. Just remember, don't forget, life is too short. Yeah.